0: I don't believe in having money without respect. If I don't enjoy respect because of the way I've made my money,
1: there's no point in it. Hi, and welcome to the Lead UP podcast. I'm Lennox Wasaram, host of the show. Here we speak to alumni from the University of Pretoria as they share their inspiring, heartwarming, and certainly exciting stories of what they're doing out in the world. And today we speak to Laurie Dipanar. He graduated back in the day with an MCOM from our economic and management sciences faculty. Recently, he received his honorary doctorate from the same faculty and he co-founded First Rand Group. Now, you might be familiar with some of their subsidiaries, which include First National Bank, known as f Rand Merchant Bank, as well as West Bank. He's had the opportunity to serve in multiple companies, but he was chairman of First Rand, but also served on the board of several other companies. Today, he joins me to share a bit about his journey, but it's so exciting that he's also used some of his experiences and some of his wealth to contribute to South Africa through scholarships, as he has a scholarship initiative for his philanthropic work. Laurie for welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. I guess my first question is, back in the day in 1977, you started Rand Consolidated Investment, known as RCI, and uh, you started that with 10,000 rand back in the day uh, after leaving your day job uh, you were working at the industrial development corporation what gave you the confidence to pursue such an opportunity
0: look i suppose even as a little boy i wanted to work for myself so that's a good starting point point. and then i worked uh, after graduating as a chartered accountant i joined the industrial development corporation And I specialize in a product called leverage leasing. It's really for project finance, quite an intricate project finance instrument. And I realized this had commercial potential. Unbeknown to me, one of my partners, G.T. Ferreira, who was with Bank of Johannesburg, he'd been working on the same product and he'd identified that it was particularly suited to public utilities, in other words, municipalities, state-owned enterprises, et cetera. So that was the basic, idea that, that we had uh, but we didn't have a brand we didn't have a track record so uh, we gave ourselves the rather f- fancy name of rand consolidated investments limited yeah. which many people confused with johannesburg consolidated investments and uh, we didn't even draw salaries for 9 months so it was and we didn't even own a copier we had to go down to a copy shop downstairs to to make copies but anyway we had a great product And we were able to do our first deal after nine months and then draw a salary. And then from that point on, sort of the pressure was off. We'd
1: survived. And then the rest of the story flowed. Thinking about not having a salary for that period of time, what allowed you to carry on going knowing that you're taking such a risk? No, okay. so I think we'd all, I wasn't married, that's helpful. eh? So I only had to
0: support myself. eh? I wasn't married at the time and uh, GT's advantage was his wife was working. So I had savings and he had a wife that was working
1: and that, okay. that saw us through for nine months. All right, all right. Yeah, that did, that did work pretty well. And speaking of your partners, I mean, how did you have such valuable relationships to, to get them to bring such shared value at the time?
0: Okay, so I think what's important, I actually didn't know GT Ferreira. Oh. We had a common friend, Pat Goss, who also worked with the Industrial Development Corporation. And he was the link between GT and myself, okay? So that, that's quite important. It was They were both Stellenbosch, I was uh, Tuckies. And then the thing that sort of what made this partnership so successful was firstly, we had a common value system, right? right. Secondly, we had complementary skills. Some skills overlapped, but some skills were uh, very, very different from one uh, to the other. We did things by consensus. We sort of, our mantra was, the business case prevails, you don't bring emotion, bias and those sort of emotions into decision making, and the strongest argument wins. Hmm. Then on top of it, we were friends socially. Our families did a lot of trips to the Olympics together. Our wives are best friends. So, I mean, we had all the ingredients for something that lasted, uh, that is still on the go and uh, started 40 uh, years ago. I think it's one of the really a very unique partnership in the history of South African business.
1: That's so interesting that such relationships brought such value, not only to the relationships, but to the country as well. Just after democracy in the 90s, uh, you moved into retail banking, uh, taking over f and at the time, a big deal that required about 5 billion rand in one day, which is arguably one of the biggest takeovers in the world at that time. What are the fears, challenges that did you experience with such a a move okay so the background to that deal is we owned at that time an
0: insurance company called momentum life and we'd identified that uh, the fourth biggest life assurer in the world was southern life based in the cape and they were ailing you know they weren't doing well so we decided to approach them uh, and to try and acquire it it belonged to anglo-american at the time but when we went to see anglo-american they said yes we'd consider selling a southern life to but then you must take F&B as well. I mean, that was whoa. Because remember, it was like the, a goldfish swallowing a whale. Yeah. But fortunately, strategically, uh, at the advent of democracy, we realized South Africa would open up to competitive investment banks. That would be a threat to RMB, and we needed a retail banking strategy. So the thought of acquiring a retail bank was in the back of our minds at all times. It's just not one this size, one of the big four. But we also realized it was a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity. So that's when uh, we went for it. So Southern Life, the brand didn't survive. It was just absorbed into Momentum Life. But fortunately, FNB it was sort of a bit of a stodgy, uh, more hierarchical non-entrepreneurial bank, but very, very solid. You know, it yeah. was over hundred years old. So uh, the risks there, we'd have to do something really silly uh, to mess it up. Uh, and then the question of fundraising, I think there the lesson was uh, our reputation was very good. Uh, long, decades long of delivering value uh, to shareholders. So we were able literally to raise five billion in one day. Uh, Make, to make the deal happen. Also, what was interesting about that time is Viv Bartler was the was a ch- a chief executive of FNB. And he said to us, gentlemen, you're investment bankers, you all got degrees or master's degrees. He said, but there are people here working in a branch somewhere in the Plattland and the lady might just have matric, but she knows when that, somebody banks a cheque, now we're going back a long time. Yeah. When Someone banks that cheque, she knows where it must go. He says, At your peril, do you get rid of people like that? And it must say, we never did. And it, it was a, a sort of lesson I can tell everybody. In big organizations, they often, people, what doesn't appear to be a very important
1: job, but it's critically important. And if you remove them, yeah. it sort of all falls down. It makes it a great foundation as well for the business. And speaking of lessons, You were involved in many company boards, interacted with some of the greatest business minds in the country, and I guess around the world. Mm -hmm. What do you think you've seen over the years that makes both business and social cohesion sort of work? Look,
0: I I think to prosper as a business, you need to be able to attract talent. And to attract talent, you need an environment where people can blossom. In other words, it would be an empowering environment. It's not... uh, uh, micromanaging people uh, it will be uh, an entrepreneurial w- environment and if you if you get that right the sort of the people do it uh, for themselves they do it for you then uh, obviously it's quite important the values of a company uh, and building trust and I mean trust you build with your shelters you build with your staff your suppliers everything it's a th- something I've focused on a lot throughout my career. Is this building of trust and then being a sort of a financial or chartered accountant uh, financial conservatism is very important you low gearing uh, robust uh, balance sheet but I suppose the real core is creating single biggest thing is creating an environment where you attract the right people do not micromanage them and let them get on with what they're good at
1: One of the things you mentioned earlier as well was around entrepreneurship, around innovation. Uh, And I think uh, Adrian Gore came to your office and Mm. spoke to you about looking at um, possibly health insurance, uh, which then obviously became Discovery Health, Mm. and Willem Roos, which then became OutSurance. When I look at those two uh, stories, and perhaps your involvement in those stories as well, it speaks to me about the whole idea of lifting others as you rise, um, how can we have more business leaders sort of like taking that approach of helping the younger people? Uh, because I think at the time they were relatively young when they approached you.
0: Yeah, very, very so much so. Adrian was 27, in fact. So the Adrian Gore's story was really, he came, we had a dormant life insurance license and he knew about it. He was working for Liberty Life at the time and he came to see me about acquiring that license from us. I said, Adrian, what do you want to do with it? I'd never met him before and he explained to me his whole idea, but it just sounded like another me too life insurance company. So I said to him, uh, that doesn't really have great appeal. Uh, go away and you can come up with something mm-hmm. but a bit different and innovative. And he came back with the idea of health insurance and he described the product that he wanted to design and everything and it just, I sort of rang bells in my, my head. I just, I just really liked the idea. Yeah. And I said, okay, Adrian, uh, you can't work on this while you're working for Liberty Life. Resign there. We'll give you an office. Pay you your current salary for three months. Produce a business plan. And if we like it, we'll back you. If we don't like it, you're on your own. Yeah. Uh, well, but I mean, guy was an actuary. So he always yeah. knew he, he had a job. So, and then in the case of Willem Bruce, uh, we we owned a a uh, short-term insurance company called Aegis made use of brokers rather than direct. And he worked there and he came to us and said, listen, this is not the future, in our opinion, of short-term retail insurance. Uh, we must go direct. This is the product that we want to have. You know, the core there was the out bonus. Again, we just, we like the idea. So you know, what you really need yeah. is to get a backing. Oh, to be honest, we're not going to just do it because you've got a nice smile and we can't. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to come with something that has commercial appeal, okay? Yeah. And, the, and then the money's generally there. And they're both giant companies today.
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah. When you look back, do you think that there's a, have you seen a change in the, the evolution of young entrepreneurs back at the time then, and perhaps now, the times that we're having this conversation?
0: Uh, I suppose I think they just people are just cleverer nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> What's quite interesting is this: the common denominator also in those two examples that you use, the, the founding uh, peop- partners were both actuaries. You know, you don't become an actuary without a relatively high uh, intellect. Okay, I think it's just uh, what it, what you can say: that having a tertiary degree definitely enhances your chances of being a successful entrepreneur versus someone who doesn't have a tertiary degree. It's not impossible, but
1: the odds are are stacked in favour of the tertiary degree. You know, we live in a society that equates wealth to success, and Forbes put you in the list of the top 10 wealthiest people in Africa uh, at some point, and uh, something many people might desire but never really get to experience. But how has your view on things like wealth evolved from the 70s to now? Yeah.
0: So what's important to me is how that wealth was created. Did you build a company right, uh, from scratch, like Steve Jobs did, or were you a tenderpreneur, or an oligog, or a crony capitalism, which I don't admire? So that's the starting point. And very core, cool, this is the most important thing. I don't believe in having money without respect. If I don't, if I don't enjoy respect, because of the way I've made my money.
1: There's no point in it. Uh, A big part of your work as well is also giving back. Mm. Uh, I've seen that you're running an initiative, scholarship initiative, giving uh, South Africans bursaries to study abroad. And over the years, I'm sure you've seen the impact of this initiative. How has this shaped your view on the power of education, so to speak?
0: Okay, the the nice little... Example, we have one of our, uh, this was not the overseas study. We also run an undergraduate bursary program uh, where the criteria are financial need and academic achievement. The overseas scholarship, it's all about academic achievement. It doesn't matter whether you have money right. or not. Anyway, so the, we started off with this financial need, academic achievement. And one of our first candidates that you got the scholarship was a young boy from uh, George, not from wealthy parents, we got him through BCom. And now, what would he have been at the time, maybe 20 or something. And today he's early or late, thir- late 30s and he earns a six-figure salary. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, that, that is, gave me, gives me enormous satisfaction and just demonstrates the absolute power of education and the, the, the benefits uh, that it brings. And then obviously we, we, in the other scholarship program, we run for overseas study, uh, there where they go to Cambridge or Oxford and those type
1: of universities, and
0: just seeing how they come back with networks and the benefit
1: to the country. Interesting, and, and you've, you, you, that's something that's very close to your heart and, uh, and also to your family's heart as well. But thinking about how your life has evolved from being so busy as an executive, I guess, early mornings, late nights, uh, and now that maybe you've taken more of a backseat uh, what is your sense of progress and being productive look like now that perhaps is not as intense as it was back in the day?
0: Okay, I'm actually enjoying life now. So what I have got is a, a family office. It's a converted uh, house uh, near my home. And my wife loves art, so it looks like an art gallery. And I still go to office every day. Not, I don't have to get there too early yeah. or, leave, <laughs> or leave too late. And I look after the family's investments. And I'm very fortunate that I've got a son who's investment savvy, he did, got a master's degree f- at Cambridge in finance, and he's joined me. And so we, we have a lot of
1: fun um, investing for the family. I guess uh, one of the things that I'll be curious about is that you have acquired a, a lot of insight about how things work, how systems work. If you became president one day, how would you create an enabling environment that would just, I guess, make the economy grow and thrive? Okay. So, I'll start off with say you've got to get the basics right
0: and one of the basics in my view is you have to make appointments on, on the basis of merit right. I mean let me example of a soccer team so if you chose Bafana Bafana on the basis of the loyalty to the coach maybe what uh, province they came from or any other criteria other than football the ability to play football how many games you're going to win none Right. So they're the same. What's gone wrong in this country, in my view, is that we've moved away from meritocratic uh, appointments. Where we haven't, it's a big success. You take the Reserve Bank, who we work with closely. It's really a top-notch first world institution, Uh, but it's transformed also. All right. But they, I think all the appointments are technocrat, uh, technocrats. They've got degrees, they're specialists in the area, and they're not, they're not political appointments. So it is, I'm just saying it is possible.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, wrapping it up, you've had the opportunity to walk and graduate with your master's at the University of Pretoria, yeah. but recently you received your honorary doctorate uh, from the University of Pretoria. When you think back, how has this wonderful institution that you, you said you're part of council at some point for many years, 27 years of how 27, 27 years. years, part of council. Embarrassingly long. Yeah, <laughs> that's around about my age right now. <laughs> Been a big contributor to the University of Pretoria over the many years. So, how has this wonderful institution helped you grow and make progress towards the vision that you had for your life?
0: Well, I think it was, if you want a direct link, we can, we can start with the Industrial Developer Corporation. Remember, I started off describing that I'd sort of specialized in leverage leasing. Now, I would never have got the job at the IDC as an investing accountant if I didn't have a top notch qualification from a university like Pretoria. So if you want to make it very simple, that was the start of my journey and the platform for that start was this university and the education
1: it gave me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I think, um, like you said, you're still contributing in many ways and um, through the scholarships, uh, through uh, your initiative, so uh, a lot of people will still benefit from all your contributions. We years. Yeah. yes. And uh, something I learned also recently is that uh, you do enjoy uh, playing a bit of golf. Um, how, tell us a bit more about that hobby and perhaps other hobbies that you... No, no, no. <laughs> I told you I was almost embarrassed to give you <laughs>
0: <laughs> my my handicap. I, I, at least I can say I used to be a good golfer when, when I was tux, yeah. Yeah, when I was a, <laughs> the same age there. But the ravages of age yeah. uh, have caught up. But so mine is entirely uh, social, and but I just I just love the game. I love watching it also, tournaments and things like that. And it's uh, I'm fortunate my wife plays, so and um, not any of my sons though, but it's it's also just a it's, a it's a bit of a life skill i think golf or urge parents you don't have to be a very good player but yeah it's, you just start them quite young
1: as i understand you did <laughs> yeah that's true uh, and also good for business as well i've had a lot of people manage to get a lot of business done yeah. in the course as well Laurie Dipinard, thank you so much for joining us today on the lead TV podcast we appreciate you making time thank you lennox much appreciated that sort of brings us to the end of our conversation i learned so much about building trust and realizing that good values can take you a long way alongside some hard work and that you can achieve anything if you do set your mind to it. This podcast is certainly available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. But if you are listening on any of those platforms, remember that we are also on YouTube so you can get the visuals of the podcast. Remember to visit slash lead leadup for more information about the podcast. Also remember to review and rate the podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the University of Pretoria's Alumni Relations Office. Our head of content is Samantha Castle. Elna Schutz is our producer and sound engineer's and videographer's are Maropa. To meet again, it's nothing but love and light to the side. Goodbye.